this is a sort of, um, I think, resistance to evolving notions of equality, right? And sort of meeting our obligations that some people are not comfortable with what it takes to, to teach a realistic version of history. They're not comfortable with what it takes to allow all children to enter schools on their own terms. And so, you know, that's not new in America, but this sort of chaos agents undermining public education are using that soft underbelly uh, to create even more chaos. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Education is the new front line in America's culture wars. This week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis participated in a signing ceremony flanked by elementary school children to enact the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill that bars classroom discussion about sexual orientation or gender identity in the state's primary schools. At least 36 states have also passed or proposed laws or policies that restrict teaching about race and racism. In the wake of several recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions, a wave of states, including Vermont, are enacting policies permitting public funding of private schools. The Vermont Senate recently passed a bill, S-219, to restrict public funding for religious schools, but critics fear that the state may unwittingly establish a precedent that a conservative U.S. Supreme Court will use to remove restrictions on funding religious schools. To shed light on these issues, my guests this week are Professor Derek Black, one of the nation's foremost experts in education law and policy. Black is professor of law at the University of South Carolina, where he directs the Constitutional Law Center. We're also joined by former Vermont Secretary of Education, Rebecca Holcomb. I began by asking Professor Black to describe the national landscape around the issue of public funding for private schools, including recent Supreme Court decisions on the issue. Putting the courts aside for just a moment, we've just had a rapid proliferation of legislation across the nation. I called it the voucher spring last year, where we saw more voucher and private school tuition uh, legislation introduced across the nation by a magnitude of 10 or 20. I mean, it was just, you have single states with five, six, seven competing bills. And the Supreme Court, at the same time, has been changing the rules of the road in terms of what those bills need to look like. So we had an opinion, Espinoza, uh, versus Montana decided a couple of years ago in which the court had held that you couldn't exclude uh, private religious schools based solely upon their religious classification from those programs. And right now before the Supreme Court, we have another case which deals with Maine's program, which is not a voucher program. I wouldn't call it a voucher program. It, it's more what you would call a public education equivalent program through the private system. Um, and there's a lot of similarities there with Vermont. And uh, what they are trying to do is to, in a select number of locations, secure the equivalent of public education uh, opportunities in a private setting. And in that case, they allow religious institutions to participate, uh, but they preclude them, well, they preclude what they would call pervasively religious institutions from participating and using public dollars to teach religion as truth uh, effectively. How do you as a state, if you allow the funding of a school, then go in and handpick the curriculum of individual classes in that school? It sounds like 
that's what Maine is, what we're getting into when we talk about pervasively religious. Maybe you could explain what that even well, means. Yeah, some people have, have, have concerns about this sort of handpicking classes, if, if I'm following your question. But I think the, the simple approach to this is to say, Maine wants to buy uh, an education, uh, you know, math, science, history, English, that is roughly equivalent to what they would learn in the public schools. And any private school who's willing to deliver that education, regardless of whether that private school has religious affiliation or not, any private school that's willing to deliver that equivalent public education um, is welcome to do so. But those private religious institutions that you know, refuse to deliver that public school equivalent and say, no, 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 we actually want to teach something different. Maine is saying, we're not going to fund that. Like, that's fine. You can do that. But it's not, we want to buy apples and you're selling oranges. And so, you know, go sell your oranges somewhere else. I mean, that's how I boil down what Maine uh, is trying to do. What about a private school that has a religious affiliation that has <clears throat> the, the, the typical core academic subjects but also requires the teaching of religion or requires attendance at a religious service perhaps to start the day? Well, I think if what you're doing is requiring uh, attendance at a religious service, we, we've got a problem right there because now what you're saying is that effectively only students who adhere to that uh, religion can attend that school. And so even if they're teaching a public school equivalent, what you're really saying is that only people we will deliver this public school equivalent to are religious students. And that's not fair to students. So I think that that's, that's a big problem if that's the requirement. Now, what if uh, they have some sort of religious instruction? I mean, I think there is, not that I'm crazy about it, but there, uh, how we work out, you know, the sort of details, but I think it, it's not, um, you know, beyond the pale to suggest that that's fine. Your school could still teach religion, but you don't teach it during the regular school day and you don't teach it with the public school dollars. And if you want to have after school religious programs or you want to have a seventh period beyond the sixth and some kids want to stick around for it, I don't see that as a problem. In fact, you know, you can do that in a you can do that in a regular public school. You know, public schools have uh, an, an open access requirement that if you know, the, the first Baptist church of, of, of whatever there and, and, and Montpelier wants to, or the Catholic church wants to have some sort of religious gathering after school, you know, they can do it just as the same as the young Republicans or the young Democrats or the, the Green Party or the environment, whatever, you know. So even in a public school, you could have that outside the regular curriculum. Um, so I don't really see there's a problem with what I'm articulating. I think there's just some religious schools that want more than what I'm articulating. So what is your primary concern about the evolving landscape of public funding for private schools? Well, I think my primary school, my primary concern actually has nothing to do with private schools at all. I mean, my primary concern is always, first and foremost, the, the state's constitutional duty to discharge its constitutional obligation to provide an adequate and equal education to every student in the state, right? And, and, and I always say, until you have done that, we shouldn't even begin to have conversations about what the state's going to do in a private school. That's kind of like extra stuff. And so I would say to any state in the union, if you haven't discharged that, um, uh, that primary constitutional duty in your public schools, you're really uh, engaging in a dereliction of duty to run off and even think about private schools. Now, 
once we move to that private school conversation, and my concern is simply is twofold. One is that a state might be diverting resources from its public schools directly or indirectly. You know, there's some legislation out there that they take the money directly out of a public school and send it to a private school, regardless of whether the child has actually ever attended a public school. That concerns me. Um, but it also concerns me that um, we are not really taking care of the public dollar which is to say that we're releasing public dollars into the private market with no sense of whether they're delivering a quality education, number one. Number two, with no sense of whether all students have equal access to that private education. If we create voucher systems that are really only for religious students or really only for wealthy students, that, that's a real problem. But finally, and more fundamentally, what concerns me maybe the very most is the idea that we as Americans can run into our corners and into our silos and get different versions. Um, well, not different versions, but that we run into our silos and develop different values um, and have a further fracturing of the common good. I don't think one needs to look any further than the last year or two to understand that our country is fracturing. And we don't solve that problem by going into our separate corners. We have long, long served that problem, solved that problem by coming into a common space in our public schools and trying to resolve those differences. You've written about what you believe is uh, kind of the hidden agenda of these efforts to privatize school. You've said that um, there is, they have a goal of, quote, shrinking public education and replacing it with government-funded private school choice. And then it's actually a threat to democracy. Uh, why do you uh, say that? Well, before I fully answer that question, I would just say that I, I wouldn't necessarily lob that at the state of Vermont or, or the state of Maine. I think there's a very unique geographic uh, context that sort of separates that. But when we start talking about other places like Florida, Arizona, South Carolina, Ohio, um, what we have, and I think you can trace this back to uh, the American Legislative Council and the Koch brothers, is one, um, the sense that government is too big. And when you look at the federal level, when we say government's too big or it's doing too much, <clears throat> or we need to shrink it, we're talking about Medicare, we're talking about Social Security. When we come to the state level, we're talking about public schools. They are the biggest thing that states do. And so those who have an anti-government concern or think taxes too are too high, they attack the public schools, not because public schools are bad, but because they consume resources. They want us all to sort of, you know, support ourselves. And so I think there's, there's definitely, <clears throat> excuse me, there's definitely that agenda going on to shrink state government in the same way that we shrink, shrink federal government. I think that is a threat to democracy because when we go back and look at the nation's founding, what we will see is this common you know, reoccurrence and commitment to the idea that a Republican form of government, what we call democracy here in America, that that rests upon a public education system that we all enter into on an on equal playing field. And you can look at all these different geographies and states and you'll see these delegates talking about you know, having the minor son come out, of the, come out of the coal mines and go to school with the senator's son or come down out of the mountains or you know, choose your geography, right? And the idea that unless we bring folks together with this common experience, democracy just doesn't work, right? We need intelligent votes. 
and we need common good. And, and public schools have never done that perfectly, but that has always been their purpose. And we need to redouble our effort to that purpose, not abandon it. You've also noted that your own research shows that privatization is growing in places with the most diverse student populations, and that it's basically non-existent in predominantly white states and regions. What's that yeah. about? Well, you know, that, that's a very troubling part of this. So yeah, in, in schoolhouse burning, I have a couple of charts there with, which show you know, what we call, a, what I call above average privatization and below average. And what we see, and when I say privatization, we're talking about both charter schools and vouchers. Um, but yes, it, it is in the Southeast. There's a uniform block that is above average in terms of its privatization. There's also some, some Rust Belt states with, with high levels of, of privatization. And then there's the Southwest with high levels of privatization, uh, places where, you know, um, students of color live. Privatization is not an issue in Nebraska. It is not an issue in North Dakota. It is not an issue in South Dakota, Wyoming. It's not an issue in West Virginia, right? And so I think we have to ask ourselves, why is it that these states that um, uh, feel the need to privatize more than others? And, and one of the postulates I have in my book is the idea is that, you know, these states have a history of being less committed to delivering equal and adequate education to uh, African-American children. And that privatization, whether we fully consciously understand it or not, um, is part of that uncomfortability in terms of fully serving and fully integrating students of color into democracy. Education has become a, perhaps it's always been a hot button issue, but of late, it is dominating headlines. Uh, in Florida this week, passage of what is uh, uh, being dubbed the Don't Say Gay Law, um, the attacks on teaching critical race theory, um, which by and large is not taught in K-12 settings. What do you think is going on here and is driving what I can only call kind of a hysteria around what is being taught in our schools? Well, there's two or three things going, well, there's probably a dozen things going on. I'll talk about two or three of them. I mean, I think the, the first thing that's going on here is part of just um, an attack on public schools and to create chaos in public schools. That started, well, that started a long time ago. We saw it ratchet up during uh, the beginning of COVID where um, the president and the secretary of education tried to label our public schools as the problem. They tried to label our teachers are the, as the problem and the private schools were the solution because that, that rhetoric really had not succeeded, uh, hadn't caught traction. And so they tried to leverage COVID and, and sort of the disaster it is and has been to sort of push more people towards the private sector, right? So that's part of it, right? Sort of this undermining faith in the system. Um, but, you know, they continue to press. And so I think some of these things about critical race theory, you know, parents' bills right, LGBTQ bans, these, again, are just to try to create distrust and dissatisfaction with the public schools. As, as, a, as a friend of mine told me, you know, it's almost like the Joker and Batman. Like the Joker doesn't really have a specific agenda other than to tear down Gotham City. Right. And the more chaos and, and hysteria and fear, the better it is for the Joker. And like he doesn't really care what it looks like in the end. 
So I think there's a little bit of this going on with, or a fair amount of this going on with the current hysteria. It's just hysteria in and of itself for those who want to attack public schools is a good thing. And they're doing a good job doing that. And then we add to that, like, why is it the public is susceptible to this type of hysteria? And this is a sort of, um, I think, resistance to evolving notions of equality, right? And sort of meeting our obligations that some people are not comfortable with what it takes to, to teach a realistic version of history. They're not comfortable with what it takes to allow all children to enter schools on their own terms. And so, you know, that's not new in America, but this sort of chaos agents undermining public education are using that soft underbelly uh, to create even more chaos. I have to say one of the most chilling images for me this week was the sight of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis surrounding himself with children, using children as props while signing a bill that was going to attack LGBTQ children in schools. Um, and I, I, I wonder if you had any reaction to that image. Uh, well, I, an image that predated that, but was related to that bill, I did. And, and what I would say to the DeSantis of the world, to the public officials of the world is, is the coarsening of society um, is dangerous for each and every person regardless of your race, your religion, your sex, your sexual orientation, your wealth. Um, you know, we're in this thing together, right? And, and we all have families that have different opinions, but you know, we gotta sit down, we gotta have Thanksgiving dinner together you know, and it requires us all to be bigger people. And so to your point, you know, there were some young men at the University of Central Florida, I believe it was, with a photo shoot just a week or two before the one you noticed. And uh, this was still before we'd gotten to lower levels of, uh, or as low as we are now, levels of COVID. And they had uh, masks on, and he was caught on film berating these young people. And I remarked to someone, regardless of what you know, DeSantis thinks or doesn't think about COVID or masks or any of that, to, to berate young people for their voluntary choice to wear a mask, which again, for him, this was always all about voluntary choice, shows me a severe either lack of character or uh, an enormous deficit of personality, or just he's become a victim of the own, the chaos he himself created in which he cannot extend other human beings basic decency and civility. And again, that that lack of that is a danger to each and every single American because they're coming for you next. Who's next? Who's next when we can't sit around and and um, and listen to one another? So it, it is chilling, uh, David, uh, to think about how, how far we are sinking. Let me turn to Rebecca Holcomb, Vermont's former Secretary of Education. Um, Rebecca, maybe you can, uh, before getting into some of the details of current legislation, explain Vermont's voucher model. Um, as Derek Black has indicated, New England and Maine, Vermont, um, has a slightly different version of, of straight up, you know, public funding for private schools. It's something that's evolved throughout um, history. So. Explain how it works. 
Well, I was happy to keep listening to Derek. I thought that was a wonderful introduction to the issues that we're facing. Um, Vermont is a state that had uh, historically has always had a very, very strong constitutional commitment to making sure every child has a fair chance to get a good education. And that's that's so important to us as a state and it's deeply embedded in our constitution. But many of our communities are very small and particularly in days before we had paved roads, school buses and snow plows, it didn't make sense for people to all travel to one school to congregate. So we had a history of very small schoolhouses. My own town used to have, I think it was 18 different school districts, each with its own one room schoolhouse. But then we got paved roads and snow plows and people started getting really excited about the bigger district school in the downtown that could provide better opportunities. But in very sparse parts of the state, it was difficult to do that. And it became even more difficult at the high school level where we really expect to give students more. They need to get more breadth and depth in the curriculum than, than sometimes one teacher can provide. So the, uh, the legislature provided for a system of tuitioning where districts could provide a public education replacement for their children by paying tuition to the nearest school. And most of those students attended what we think of as our historical academies. And in fact, even though they had private boards, these academies were considered public schools with a public mission in statute until 1991. And that was how communities that had very sparse population or people were very spread out managed to provide education to their children. And that's how many children received the, the, the learning opportunities they needed to, to do the jobs Vermont needed them to do. Since then, in 1991, the legislature changed statute and converted them from public schools without school boards, which are democratically elected boards, into private independent schools, which are essentially nonprofit schools that can set their own uh, mission and make decisions under a private board that's not accountable to taxpayers. And that's where the current model that shapes much of what we live under uh, first evolved. So let's talk about how this changing landscape of public funding for private schools that uh, Derek Black described is impacting Vermont and um, may change how students, uh, how we do tuitioning and who get what kind of schools receive public funding. I think we need to go back to where Derek started, which is when we pay for public education for our children, wherever they live, what is the public education for which we're paying? Because we believe as a state that giving every kid a fair chance and making sure they have a chance to learn what they need to learn to be part of a democratic community is so integral to who we are. One of the challenges that we have currently is that while we have a lot of rules for public schools, their open enrollment, they uh, provide extra services to make sure children who have disabilities or children who are meeting have mental health needs or need additional language support are able to attend. We provide school buses so that the fact that you can't get to school doesn't become a barrier that keeps you from getting there. 
we provide uh, guidance through statute and rule and education quality standards for what we think it means to be well-educated in the state of Vermont. The challenge Vermont has is that none of these apply to private schools that are funded by tax dollars. And that makes it very difficult to expect uh, an equitable opportunity in those settings compared to what you provide in the public setting. And um, to go back to what, uh, you know, what Derek said, our first responsibility is to make sure every child has a good, safe, high quality education. And right now in Vermont, we know, for example, that we have children in the Northeast Kingdom going to school in buildings that have black mold problems. We've got kids in Burlington going to school in a Macy's where they figure out how to get a building that doesn't have PCBs in it. And we've got uh, students in uh, a building in Woodstock that are struggling with sewage that blacks up backs up because the state has neglected to take care of and maintain public infrastructure on which most Vermont children depend. But at the same time, we're protecting uh, payment of Vermont tax dollars to you know, great schools like Phillips Exeter Academy, which guarantees education at no cost to any family in Vermont that gets in but who has a household income of less than $75,000, which begs the question, when we have this first responsibility to take care of our children, because no one else will do that, why are we giving money to schools with no invested interest in our children when we haven't finished our job and our obligation to our own? Let me uh, uh, cut to the issue that's on the front burner right now, a bill in the Senate Vermont Senate, uh, Senate 219, um, you write that it risks handing the U.S. Supreme Court the case it needs to redefine religious freedom as the freedom to use tax dollars to discriminate. How would it do that? And, and I gather that was not the purpose of the bill, but it is the unintended consequence that you believe it has. Well, and I think the purpose I'm really asking us to consider is that we have been now for 30 years in a system where we don't regulate how our public education dollars are used when they're applied in private schools. And we need to go back to that question of what is the public education we buy when we allow tax dollars to be used in private settings. And that's what we need to do. Just as when school districts contract for food services, they don't have to buy candy because that's what a food service company wants to offer. We buy nutritious meals for our children. In the same way, we need to be able to define what public education is for the purpose of paying tuition. Unfortunately, this bill takes the opposite approach. What it does is single out and attempt to limit the use of tax dollars for religious education. And I think that there is a possibility that the current litigants will see that as an imposition on their, their, first, their free exercise of religion. It's off course, um, you know, because it's off target, S-219 is guaranteeing continued legislation, but it's a diversion. What we need to do as a state is focus on how we make sure that every child, no matter where they live, no matter who their parents are, no matter how much their parents earn, has access to a good education that lets them contribute their hearts and their minds and their strong hands to making this a great state. And that's what 219 doesn't do. Derek Black, I wonder, in, in the, we just have a minute left, where do you see the trajectory of where things are going nationally where do you think we're going to be in five years when it comes to this issue of um, 
what the state of public education is in America? Well, I'll talk to the vouchers, I think, because it's, <clears throat> it's smaller and easy to get to. I think we may be in a place five years from now in which uh, some states feel compelled to shut down their charter and voucher programs and some other states run wild. And, and by that, what I really mean is that, you know, the good people, well, the Supreme Court is moving towards doctrine that suggests you more and more so that you can't um, exclude religion and that the state really can't control its dollars once they enter the private sector. And I can imagine a state like Massachusetts saying, well, if we cannot preclude, you know, Catholic diocese from operating charter schools on the public dime, or we can't control anti-discrimination in the private sector, you know, we're just going to end charter schools. We're just going to end vouchers. Um, and, you know, I'd be fine with that, that, you know, that seems like if that's the choice you have is unregulated private market uh, or no private market, that makes sense for Massachusetts. But I fear that in places like Texas and North Carolina, South Carolina, well, I won't list the so-called bad list, but that they'll be more than happy to spend increasingly and much larger sums than they currently do right now to start the first Baptist public charter school of Columbia, which sounds like a contradiction of terms to me, but nonetheless, the interest in vouchers, the interest in charter schools could go uh, off the off the scale in in places with with a with a different you know religious and political uh, demography than than say Massachusetts. So we may be le leading to um, a tale of two different countries when it comes to, to public education and privatization in America. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, uh, Professor Derek Black and former Education Secretary Rebecca Holcomb. I want to thank both of you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much, David. Thanks, David.